Hello and welcome to another episode of Is Vicious Fantasy. I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm his friend from another world, Duncan Nickel. Keeping it short and simple, Duncan. In many respects, like this novel. Oh, you think so? I think so. I think The Subtle Knife, the second book in Philip Foreman's His Dark Materials trilogy, is a lot more mm. reduced. I think this is a, a bit of a smaller scope, in a weird way. And it is a weird way. This one feels to me a bit of a smaller scope, a bit more of a personal story, a bit more of a bit of character work. That is interesting, because, I mean, for one thing, it is a shorter book. There's no arguing with that. On the other hand, it does take place on four different universes. It does indeed. There's a lot more kind of like parallel world hopping. Uh, but mm-hmm. a few locations. I think there's something to be dived into there. But before we kind of get on with this book, Geordie, you read anything else this over the last fortnight? Uh, not really, no, actually. I've, I've been pretty focused on this particular book. I did see Eurovision for the first time last night. That was a new experience. Uh, I enjoyed it more than I expected to. I uh, did not watch Eurovision last night. I heard that the UK did not do well. No, but we didn't deserve to do well. We came at the end of the night and we were just, like, pretty boring. Like... I don't think we deserve to get, like, three points, which is what we got, ultimately, I think. Or maybe, like, 17 points. At least we weren't as bad as Germany. No one liked Germany. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Um, Yeah. I think it's the nature of the competition, though. It's like, you only score points if you're someone's favourite. So, you could be quite good, but even if you're no one's favourite, you're still coming at the bottom. Yeah, there's also, there is a sort of political lens to it. Like, Ukraine won last year, um, and, like, I'm sure it was deserved, but this year they got a lot of points for what was just a really bad act. Like, not good at all. Good presentation, but, like, a really bad song, and they still got a bunch of points, so, you know. Fair enough, fair enough. I don't don't have really a horse in that race. If people enjoy Eurovision, Mm. good for you. Um, I mean, I probably will watch it every year from now on. <laughs> like, I just had a blast. What about you, Duncan? Have you been reading anything? I have. Watching Eurovision? I have been reading. So I flew through uh, The Subtle Knife. Really enjoyed it. Really powerful. I got through this book so quickly. And I was left there kind of floundering, like, what do I do with kind of my newfound time? And I did mm. a little bit of Dibble Dabble. I read a few comics. Um, I started reading a little bit of Wonder Woman. Which one? Um... This was, I believe it's the 2006 to 2011 run with uh, Gail Simone. Sure, sure, yeah. I, I've i not read any really, you know, further Wonder Woman canon. I, it was okay. I don't know if this is like the most representative of Wonder Woman or like held the best. I really am not connected. But on paper, I go, oh, we've got like a, you know, so this fantasy heroine warrior you know, we've got that connection to the Greeks. We've got this modern day combination. Like, I like mm-hmm. DC. I really like Batman. So I was going into this expecting to love it as a fan of like other kind of more slightly more sword and sorcery bits. Like, you know, like Red Sonja, huge fan. And yeah, sure, I, I sure. just kind of found it okay. It's all right. Didn't really change my worldview, to be honest. I brought four, mm-hmm. four uh, like volumes at once. Um, <laughs> That's a lot of volumes to buy at once. It was really on sale. Committed. But okay. I am, I kind of now sat back on. Yeah, I'm going to finish these volumes, but if I just bought the first one and read it, I would not have continued. But I gave it its time. And then the second thing I've read... Duncan, how did it compare to the experience of reading Conan Ampersand Wonder Woman? 
Okay, I love Conan Ampersand Wonder Woman. <laughs> it's the first Wonder Woman <laughs> thing I ever read. Also, I believe, uh, was that written by Simone as well? I'm not sure. She definitely wrote the Conan Red Sonia crossover. Mm. That's a really interesting one. It combines the lore. It's a crossover between like Conan Dark Horses, like DC and Dark Horse as well. Um, the only mm-hmm. issue I have with that one is that the whole premise of that is that Conan like thinks Wonder Woman is is like this woman that he knew from Samaria. And he's like, what's happened? You've forgotten all about me. Do you have amnesia? Um, and it literally, you're like, well, no, Conan, you're, you're just mistaken. <laughs> like, But it plays it like that's a plot point. Like you're like, is this Wonder Woman? Or is this like this Sumerian woman that Conan thinks it is? Um, and you're like, well, it's clearly Wonder Woman because that's what the cover says. Mm-hmm. So what are we doing? But it, it's a bit of fun. The other thing I read this week, it's funny you bring up yes, Conan, yes. was, oh. Um, oh, do you know, I don't even know how to pronounce this word properly. So, sorry. Okay. Scone? Scone? Scoon? S-C-I-O-N. S-C-I-O-N. Oh, Scion. Scion. What does that mean? <laughs> it's like the scion of a noble house. It's descendant. Brilliant. So I read Scion of the Serpent by J. Stephen York. All right. Or to give it its full title, Age of Conan, Hyborian Adventures, Anok, Heretic of Stygia, Volume 1, Scion of the Serpent. All right, hang on, hang on, hang on. Where are the colons and or dashes in that title? Um, There is but one colon, and it comes okay. between the Anok... And Heretic of Stygia. Interesting. Wait, what? Oh, the rest is just on different weird. lines. I mean, it's and different sort of fonts. Of like an old medical treatise. As well. Age of Conan, Herborian Adventures is one font. Then Anok Heretic of Stygia Volume 1 is another font. And then Scion of the Serpent is a, yet another font. It's a messy and here cover. here I get so hung up on naming my stories. I should just give it eight names. <laughs> it is a... Um, Conan tie novel to the Conan MMORPG. It's, oh, Duncan. It's one of um, 12 that were written. It was four authors got signed on to write four separate trilogies following different characters in the Hyborian world while Conan is king. Um, mm-hmm. Conceptually, I actually like the idea. I think the Hyborian setting that Robert e. Howe came up with is good and could be explored beyond the character of Conan. But... Th- this book was not good. Yeah. It was... I don't know how to describe it. It was like like a Red Bull. It gave me a bit of energy for reading. And it did go through fast. It's like a three-day read of just... Duncan, you know, it's genuinely admirable that, like... I meet so many people in my day-to-day life who are like, Oh, you know, I want to read more, but I just really find the time to, like, sit down and focus on reading. And, and you will just read whatever crap falls into your lap, you know? I genuinely do admire it. Thank you. I think it's good. And I... I think I've said this before, like, if you're someone who's going to take, like, a month to read 250 pages, then, like, maybe, mm-hmm. yeah, you should read something of a bit more literary value. But we <laughs> kind of fly through things in, like, two to three days. It's like, yeah, read a bit of crap. Crap, how much you appreciate yeah. when something's good. That's my lesson for the day, people. I don't think that's true. I really don't. I think people get quite attenuated to crap, and they, they tend to focus all of their their understanding of what is good around crap to justify their enjoyment of crap. 
I don't really have a way to dig myself out of that. I feel like I've just insulted a lot of people, but... I think you've insulted hey-ho. me, but let's move on. Something no, that I have not is... insulted you, Duncan. You understand what good quality literature is. And speaking of good quality literature, shall we talk about the subtle knife? Let's. So. Hey, Duncan. I thought this book was fucking awesome. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. So, Geordie, this is a reread for both of us. Did you like... It is. Is Did you enjoy it? More or less than the first time you read it, then? Is this... This is going up in your estimation. This is my third read of this book. And there are distinct eras of my life. The first time was when my dad read it to me. I was probably about nine years old. Then I read it myself again in my... Ooh, I'm going to say maybe 11 or 12 years old. And what I realised reading this through is how much of this book I just did not get or remember like it is such a steep learning curve up from the northern lights the northern lights is like a book that's basically appropriate for children even if it's a bit dark in places this book is like actually really complicated i would i agree i think i do agree um quite strongly i think the northern light is it's it's an adventure story it's quite episodic you just follow lyra one point of view and you go from little adventure in oxford a little adventure with miss Coulter, a little little adventure with the gypsies and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you kind of you know pull along but it's like a fantasy story it's like the hobbit you know we go from point to point exactly. meet some interesting characters along the way this is i wouldn't say that jumping to the sus knife is exactly like going from the hobbit to the lord of the rings but it's definitely a letter grade down from that in terms of difficulty, you know? I do, yeah, I do know. Like, Hobbit to the Lord of the Rings, it's like, excuse me, sir, but this is not barely, in a way, but it's not the same genre. <laughs> what have you done? Yeah, he, he literally didn't want it to be the case. Like, Philip Pullman meant to write this book, but I, I genuinely think, you know, to me, the Amber Spyglass and the Sutter Knife are, in a, some, in a way, like, their own series almost separate from the northern lights there's something that is so fundamentally different about the way this book is written and has more to do with the fact that it's not just about lyra anymore there's other perspective characters there's a distinct difference in perspective and to slightly undermine my my first point a big part of that comes from the presence of will in the story so let's just lay a little bit of groundwork for the people who maybe haven't uh, read the book yet so yeah northern lights northern lights ends with our main character lyra she sets off in that on her magical journey with two goals to save her friend roger and find her father at the end of the yeah. book she finds her father who then proceeds to murder her friend roger and then completely Oops. sod off and abandon her um not one to wallow and sulk Lyra picks herself up and heads off for a magical portal that her father made into a multi-dimensional journey, travelling to another world. Mm. That's where it ends. She walks off into the portal in the Northern Lights. This book opens with Will Parry, a young boy in... A completely different character whom we've never met, who actually lives in a different universe from Lyra. And a universe that is kind of made out explicitly to be our universe... He's coming from where we are. It's his London is our London. Within Oxford. The, the context of the Yeah, it's Oxford. And Will has such a, I don't want to say dark, but grounded opening. 
you know? Yeah, yeah. I think you had it with Dark. It is Dark. Like, you see deaths happen in the first book. Like, it ends with a boy being murdered. But there is something so grimy about Will's sudden arrival into the story. It's not just the fact that, like, the opening chapter involves him accidentally murdering a man. It's, like, everything involving his relationship with his mother and the way in which he, like, has to be this independent, uh, brutal kid, you know, looking after his his mentally unstable mother. It is such a different world from Lyra. It's nothing like she would ever have experienced in her world or in her life. For me, it's the fact that Will is... He doesn't have the same forces against him, you know. Lyra is mm. literally going up against, you know, armies, institutions, you know. All these people, like, hunting her. Whereas with Will, it's like, you know, maybe he's not as centre of the universe as Lyra is. Mm-hmm. But unlike Lyra, he actually has no friends. There is no one in his mm-hmm. corner at the start of this story. That's true. Just his cat. Just his cat, who is a great cat. And I'm Good honestly, cat. I don't think I've ever known a cat to perform so well and dutiful for his master and pretty much all accidentally as a cat would always aside from the other cat he meets later down the line which is even more of a help to him so yes will's mother she has she has uh uh mental health issues she's struggling mm-hmm. and will is scared that you know if he goes to the authorities for help they'll ultimately end up separating them so he works yeah. so hard to basically hide the fact that his mum um, has her mental health issues and mm-hmm. project this level of normality. And this basically means that he's can't have friends over. A really strong bit that really kind of hit me in this book is when he talks about like he couldn't make friends because friends go around each other's for tea and he couldn't have any mm-hmm. boys or girls come back to his house because then they'll find out mm-hmm. about his mum. Oh, Yeah, I, th- I think there is something that's really striking. It's not just about the way which I think... I think the fundamental strength behind the Sutter Knife, more than the amazing world building and the way in which Philip Pullman just incredibly expands the stories and makes characters who previously were supporting characters into significant perspective characters, more so than that, it's the conjunction of Lyra and Will. Characters who fundamentally are really similar in a lot of ways, the main one being that they are for want of a less punny term, extremely willful and determined characters. I think nothing could be more obvious about the difference, differences between them than the chapter when they meet. It, it, it culminates in, like, Will having to teach Lyra how to cook because she has never cooked for herself before. Oh, so let's, let's just kind of lay the groundwork then up to that moment. It happens quite early on in the book. Mm-hmm. We follow Will. It's chapter one. Like, it's a long chapter one. It's so much happens in chapter one of this book. It's genuinely impressive. Now, there is one point yeah. I do want to... I don't say critique, but a bit where my brain just went, hey, I didn't notice it as a kid. Uh, Will, mm-hmm. he gets into trouble. He has to t- rush his mum to the only person he knows, the piano teacher. He's like, please just look after mm-hmm. her. He accidentally kills a man um, by knocking him down the stairs because his cat gets Who in the way. Who is robbing his house for secretive documents. And then he heads out on his own. He's like, I can't go to the police. I can't go back to my mum. These men are after us. I don't know why. And then he sees a cat just disappear in front of him. And he looks yeah. and he sees just this portal in the middle of a... Mm-hmm. It's like a bit of green, like on a roundabout. He just looks and he goes... And 
it describes it that will in the same way that in the first book people just know about demons or know that someone like doesn't have their demon will just look through the portal and just knows he's staring at like another world another universe mm-hmm. will is very chill about this i mean i think that is a fair thing to critique about that like he was a bit distracted at the time, but yeah, he is pretty comfortable the fact that he jumps between worlds. Also, it, it kind of gave me, I don't know you had this well, a bit of a Narnia vibe. That like, no, even in Narnia, I think they have a bigger reaction to discovering a magical land. Well, it's just like, well, this is really convenient because I'm on the run from the police and <laughs> who would think to find me here? Yeah, it's true. It's true. Do you have to think it's a problem? I don't think it's needed. I think, you know, the plot moves along and there's enough interesting stuff I kind of got over it. But it was just that first sticking point. I was like, well, you've acted very normal and grounded up till now. This is a bit... I mean, he knows how to take care of himself. He, he, think, he can think on the fly. Fair enough. So, I think the really interesting thing that happens in this book beyond Will and Lyra meeting in this other world in the city of Chittagatse, which is oh, like devoid of all adults. You yep. pronounce the name. Yes, I pronounce the name, Duncan. Um, How did you think it was pronounced? Katajasi? Katajasi? Yeah, yeah. I British, I think uh, you're pretty clearly supposed to have like the Italian pronunciation with it. So the C sound is pronounced with a ch because of all the, um, you know, Latin-y names you get. Yeah, Will finds himself in the world containing the city of Chittagaze, you know, seemingly devoid of all adults. When they do find people, they only find children. But also, interestingly, like, stuff from Will's world, like, they have Coca-Cola there. And initially, I'm like, it's very interesting that, like, a world would develop, like, so differently in so many ways and yet still have the same name brand products. But actually, no, it turns out it does make complete sense. And, like, Philip Pullman put tons of thought into the world that contains Chittagaze. See, that was another one where I was initially like, that's weird. But when he mm-hmm. really dies in and he reveals it, I was like, well played, sir. Well played. I was doubting you. So, how, I don't know where to approach it. Because I kind of want to gush here. Geordie, because yeah. I like this book. I said it um, when we discussed Northern Lights. I said that The Subtle Knife was my favourite book in the trilogy when I first read it. And mm. having read it again, I enjoyed it more than Northern Lights. And mm. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I'm going to enjoy it more than The Amber Spy Glass. I mean, it probably, it pro- I think that probably will be the case. If I remember anything about The Amber Spy Glass, I remember it being like even longer and more complicated and not in the most positive way. I think there was something fundamentally really, really impressive about how well this book fits together. Like, I forgot how... I, I mean, I, not to, I didn't forget. I never understood as a kid so much stuff in this book, which is, like, really clever in the way it's laid out. Like, everything about Will's father. I just didn't get it as a kid. I was confused, and I just kept reading, being like, whatever, whatever, I don't get it, but who cares? And... I remember Lee Scoresby's chapters being, like, really boring when I was a kid because they were just people talking. But they were, like, my favourite chapters this time reading it through because of how well um, the mystery was built up and then cleverly cleared away. And you could, like, see it coming slowly but surely, all these mysteries being solved in front of you. Who is Dr. Grumman? Okay, so we've thrown out and talked about loads of different elements there. Let's pick one then, maybe, Jordan, just kind of, like, expand on it. So let's go back to Coca-Cola. Why is there Coca-Cola, <laughs> and why is that great? 
Well, what it turns out is that whilst Lord Asriel and Lyra have only just gone beyond the boundaries of their own world, it turns out lots of people have been journeying around through other worlds for millennia. And the people of the world that Chitagatse is in have discovered a way to open up these portals themselves. And they used this power, this ability to walk between other worlds, other realities, to become thieves. You know, they were a mercantile city and they went into Will's world and they took products there. There's an amazing bit later down the line where someone handles this incredibly valuable ointment and he, like, very, very delicately ekes out just enough to cover a wound. And when Will looks at it, it's like something he could buy at Boots, you know? It's antiseptic cream. And then because of this, like, no one in that world really understands, like, the technologies that they're using. Because they just yeah, go exactly. and nick it. They don't have to develop mm-hmm. it. <gasps> they're a planet of Ferengi. Star Trek reference? Indeed. Good to know. Um, I really love it at the end of this book. You got me with Star Wars, Duncan. It's my turn now. It's my turn. Um, I love at the end how they, they're sort of talking about this and they're like, they developed a device capable of like creating portals to other dimensions and they use it to basically steal sweets. It's like, <laughs> we can go anywhere in the universe. What are we going to do? Let's rob Coca-Cola. But I really do like the use of Coca-Cola in particular, not only because it grounds it to like our world, but I like the fact that when like Lyra is like interacting, it's, been with her through the northern lights and she's gone through all these weird and wild adventures and yet Mm -hmm. i find it it made her seem more like a child it reminded me of her age when she like so interesting isn't it it's so interesting how lyra transforms between books and our perspective on her changes in that chapter when she doesn't know how to cook and she's fascinated by opening a can because you're right up till now people have taken her really seriously and they've listened to what she has to say but will kind of doesn't like, Will likes her, but Will doesn't respect her at all, really. And I don't think that's... um, And that's not a bad thing on his character. It's just a really good way to kind of see her not as, like, the the child of prophecy, say. Which is quite, you know, quite a common thing in sort of YA. You've got the special child, Harry Potter. You will be great. Which is sort of the aura that she has in sort of the Northern Lights. And just be like, have someone to be like, no, you are a kid. Also, mm-hmm. I really like the fact, you, we talked, mentioned several times, that she didn't know how to cook. And it made me then think, oh yeah, in your world, you were actually really privileged. Exactly. She had someone who was cleaning her. She's like, oh yeah, the cooks made the food. It's like, you never... What was her position? And I never thought about it in Northern Lights, like what Lyra's position was at like Jordan College. Because they're like, well, they mm. sort of taught her, sort of didn't teach her. But like, she didn't seem to have chores then. No, she had no responsibilities. Great life. She was a precocious kid. To, to, to take a broader view of the novel and not focus too much on chapter one. Uh, that's chapter I two, mate. We're not, you know, we're pushing the boundary a little bit. We are not at chapter two yet. We are still on chapter one because chapter two is where we get reintroduced to the fact that now not only is Will our new perspective character, we are going beyond our two main characters. They are not our only perspective on the world now because chapter two is from the perspective of Serafina Pekela, the witch. And suddenly, everything about our experience of reading this book changes because now we can go anywhere. We can go into other worlds. We can see Dr. Malone. We can see Ruta Scotty, the other witch, and she can go into a dub- another plane of existence and we can follow her there. It does a lot to expand sort of the, the scope. In some respects, I do think 
while it gives us information that like we need to understand like what the wider mechanisms are I never felt as much of like a personal connection to any of our other POVs that weren't Lyra and Will I often felt when we got I I don't think you're I think you're lying to me right now Duncan well oh yeah sorry Lee Scoresby my apologies (laughs) exactly exactly uh I I was at a certain point, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to finish the book in time unless I got the audiobook because I was way, way, way too busy the last two weeks. So I got the audiobook, even though I already owned a physical copy of the book, and I was literally buying groceries in co-op before a party, and I was, <laughs> I literally started crying in a co-op. I was listening to the last Lee Scoresby chapter. Oh my goodness. Do you know what? And that was a classic kind of moment. So let's talk about Lee Scoresby. Lee Scoresby, the Texan, the aeronaut. He's one of our kind of mm-hmm. main, I don't know, I'm going to call him an exotic character in the first book. He's one of the more, most interesting people that Lyra meets. Yeah, exactly. And in this book, he's, he's a POV and he's trying to help Lyra. He's trying to find ways to still help her. Um, I really thought that was really nice. To be honest, I didn't really get the vibe in the first book that his connection was as deep to Lyra as it's then portrayed in this book. I don't think Lee... I think that's a known. fair criticism, yeah. Um, I also was a little bit upset that we had got very little of Lyra's other big friend on her journey from the first book. Who's missing? Yorick Burdison. Why is there no giant armor polar bear in this book? He is, he is sorely missed. But I think the fact that he's not there really, like enhances Will's role because he kind of steps into Yurik's place as the book constantly says Lyra likes Will because he reminds her of Yurik and the fact that you know Will a 12 year old boy can't do any of the things that Yurik does but thinks like Yurik is a is really interesting dynamic and I want to talk more about Will as like a a tool for action in this book because I think there's something really interesting about the way Philip Pullman justifies the fact that Will can like fight and things like that when he's just a kid. But I don't want to get off course. Where was right our from course? the start? I think we were talking about Lee Scoresby. We were. If we're talking about multiple POVs, but yes, Lee Scoresby. So let's talk about Lee Scoresby. Mm-hmm. Lee Scoresby. I would. I, I feels to me, and this might be completely wrong. He makes up maybe a sixth of the page count. Less? No, I don't I don't feel like in my head. I haven't worked out the maths. But I don't think he takes up a huge amount of this actual book. No, not at all. But And a lot of the chapters he's in are actually quite exposition y. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like he's there to like add that's what my original critique was. The POV characters I feel like are there to give me information, not to be get me invested in the actual characters. And to be fair, you were like Duncan, you're lying, Lee Scoresby. That only came in in his final chapter. Because Lee Scores- Scoresby... You really think that the chapters of Dr. Malone, like, don't advance the story in any way? I'm not saying they don't advance the story. I'm just saying that what You're they're... saying they're just there to give us information? To give us information. Not, like, you're not supposed to be, like, appreciate her as a character in or herself? I'm not saying that you're not meant to. I'm saying that I didn't. You don't care about Dr. Malone? Personally, I don't. Not, not at this point in Subtle Knife. I'm like, cool, you're a scientist, you're like, one of the scholars, you're a nice person, you seem quite cool, but I'm not invested in her grander 
character development and I know there's a lot set up with Dr Malone in terms of her losing her faith in what she's trying to do and her thoughts like where she takes a stand on like what else are we talking about Dr Malone now damn it man uh, we're talking about these course with Dr Malone like there's so much set up there and I can see the character beats being set up but I just wasn't actually caring yet what does she find her faith I don't I don't mind she can't she can't I mean that's your perspective. It's not one I share. Like, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Dr. Malone. I'm a Malone head. And you know what? We don't have to get bogged down in the personal journey, journeys of each of our perspective characters. Ruta Scardi, Serathina Pekala, uh, Lee Scoresby, Dr. Malone. We can just go in and hone in on Will and Lyra. Okay, okay. Like, all the side characters, I didn't feel as much as you did, but I do take your point. But let's just kind of go back then to the two characters that we both very much agree on that we are both invested in their personal stories and the adventure they go on, Will and Lyra. So, Will Parry, what is his quest? So, yeah, um, the reason why Will has had to accidentally kill a man is to find, is to protect documents belonging to his father, which for some reason, other people want. Will's father was an explorer who 12 years ago, just after Will was born, vanished on an expedition. And Will... To his own surprise, realizes that he is on a quest to find his father. And that leads him to places he did not expect to go. And I think it's a really nice parallel that Will's looking for his father in the same way that Lyra in the first book is trying to find her father. That's true, that's true. I also like the fact that, at least with Lyra, she kind of knows the man. Will is literally just kind of looking for the man based purely on his, like, mum's impression like he's looking for the dream of his dad. Exactly. He has no real idea who the bloke really is. Yeah, and um, and much like Lyra, that the journey to find him sort of like reveals the true nature of the world. Like Lyra discovered that the world wasn't a fair place, or searching for her father, and Will is starting to have to contend with all these almost cosmic forces trying to either support him or get in his way. I think, Duncan, there's something really elegant in how Will's really basic journey is sort of led down this serendipitous path towards much, much, much higher stakes. It's sort of a journey of him him realising that despite you know what sets him off, there's so many bigger things going on in the universe and he's like, I need to step up from just looking after my mum and just, like, looking for my dad. I think, I think that's the way it goes, especially with Lyra. He, it's him realising, okay, I have my own goals, but what are Lyra goals? How can I help her? No, no, what are you talking about? Um, the book? When is, is Will that... ever trying to help Lyra? Um, he tries to help her get... Oh, no, he only wants her to get the Lithiometer back so he can find his dad. Yeah, no, I, I, com- I'm completely disagreed. The fact Will only realises that there is any higher significance to his actions... In the last three pages of the book, everything up to then is Will's really selfish desires. And that's what I like about it. Like, Will thinks he's only in it for himself. And everything that happens is just to get what he wants. It's only at the very end that he realises how much that selfishness, that single-mindedness has cost him. But I still feel like it drips through earlier on. You know, in his interactions, like, as he's liking her and growing attached you know... He's trying to look after her as well. I mean, that's true, of course. Like, he's obviously trying to support her. Not... But I think Lyra is much more supportive of Will 
obviously in this book than he is of her. That's almost her arc in this book, that Lyra, you know, Lyra was the main character of the last book, and she still thinks she's the main character, you know? It just sort of comes to a certain point where she has to start maturing a little bit, and realizing that she needs to help Will instead of just going after her own ends. She's almost cosmically punished for her indiscretion by dust and the alethiometer when it's stolen from her because she went against the will of the alethiometer, which, by the way, feels like a completely different machine in this book. Do you think so, Duncan? Yes, absolutely. So the alethiometer in the first book was sort of a coded truth you know you had a question and it threw out images and either had to sort of decode or what is it saying in this book it basically had to be a sass to it it does it really does and i don't know if this is meant to be the idea that whatever is driving the issue we talk about dust but it has a consciousness behind it i think that is something that maybe gets expanded on more in the next book but i love it when it's just like i think it's pretty laid out in this one not like at the end, though, where she's like, where do I have to go? And it's just like, onwards, up. Yeah, keep, keep going, going, don't stop. Which shows, yeah. though, that it's not just like an answering question. Like, it has an intent. It wants Lyra and it wants Will to achieve certain things. Yeah, I mean, that couldn't be more clear in the Malone chapter. You know, when she sort of makes her own alethiometer. And that one, I think because she just is way more inquisitive and way more prepared to ask questions of dust, of shadow particles, she's she's being fundamentally a more curious person. She sort of sees the wider truth, and she asks direct questions. Lyra never asked the alethiometer, what are you? And because of that, she sort of just blindly follows it. Malone is a character who says, who are you? Do you have consciousness? And gets a direct answer which, do we want to talk about at this juncture? Like, quickly go over Dr. Malone and Dust and what Dust is? Because this book kind of comes straight out and tells us. I think now's the best time as any. So, unlike the first book, which almost has... I'm going to say, you know, it's fantasy, it's magic. How did Lethe to work? Magic. Moving on. Yeah, this book, yeah. it wants to really knuckle down and not only talk about dust and ethiometer in Lyra's world but then draw comparisons to our understandings of like physics in our world so talking about shadow the idea of like, you know, shadow particles antimatter it's trying to kind of link it in but Dr Malone asks it a direct question Geordie what does it tell her when she's literally has it in the machine this machine can kind of commune with it what does it say yeah so we learn so much about dust in this book and about the way it like it seems to be attracted not to adults. It seems to be attracted to, 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 to human beings. And even the stuff human beings make. Like they say a piece of ivory has no dust on it. But a piece of ivory carved into a chess piece has lots of dust attached to it. Which is like completely threw me for a loop when I read that. Because it completely threw away my half-remembered ideas of what dust is. And... When Dr. Malone asks dust itself directly, what are you? It says, we are angels. We are fallen angels from Lucifer's fall. Now, Tolkien, do you remember this from when you read it as a kid? No, not in the slightest. Not this a, went no, straight over my not head. At all. I never, when I read this as a kid, 
Like I remember it being, you know, obviously the religious kind of themes and metaphors. But and I knew Angel showed up, but I never realised that it was so this direct and that that um, the language. I think it's the language it uses. I didn't remember that it was like, yeah, it's angels. It's angels as we understand angels. That's what it is. It is, yeah. There is still a mystery by the end of this book, despite all the direct, like, questions. There's still a bunch of mysteries, like, you know, like, bigger questions, like, why? Why is this happening? What do the angels, these angels want? Why is Lyra so important? But even that is sort of hinted at really heavily by the end of the book. I want to see more about how it is, um, like, explored in the next book. Because one thing I can't remember, Duncan, I still can't remember, is the bit right before the series ends. Like, I know how the book, last book ends, but I don't remember what happens directly before that. So there's a huge swathe of the next book that I don't remember, and I'm really interested to see like how it all just plays out. I think what this book has actually reminded me is where my memory's been selective, it's because it's on the bits that I actually find still more even now i find more engaging you know you i can hear you in your voice you're so passionate about the dust and it's it says that we're angels from lucifer's fall and mm. i just like hanging out with will and lyra <laughs> like they're just really fun <laughs> characters to be with that i'm almost like they are they are i don't want to say i don't care um or it's not really interesting but Compared to just mm-hmm. seeing those characters work through their problems and the hope that they'll have a happy ending, all the rest of it is almost immaterial. So while it has that really powerful like hook, I'm just like, cool, good for you guys. And I know that's probably like not what 80% of the people that read this are going to feel. I, I mean, there's no question, you know, I really like their interactions. Like, you know, Lyra is already such a fun protagonist and Will is a great foil for her because, you know, He's a lot more like us. He comes from our world. He thinks like we do, and he's kind of baffled by Lyra. But the relationship they build over the course of the story is really convincing. And I think what holds it together well is the fact there is still some of that adventure from the first book. As different as this is, you know, there's still almost like, you know, mini missions they have to do. Like, I, and I think it all really is defined by the, the theft of the Lithiometer in this book. Right, Duncan? I completely agree. This is the moment where Lyra has lost her magical item. What I think for a large part, she kind of defines herself a bit special by it. She's like, what do I do now that I don't provide this knowledge? And it drives the biggest mission, which is to go and get the subtle knife in the hope of trading it to get the leafy onto back. And it's this mission where Will suddenly gets his reveal moment of, actually, you're the special one. Yeah, it was, um, I was actually surprised by how sort of bog-standard fantasy it was. The idea that it's a a magic blade, a magic blade that chooses him. He is the bearer. Exactly. Like, it's, I was really surprised. For one thing, I forgot he got his fingers chopped off. Like, I completely forgot that. Blocked that out as a kid. Um, but also, like, I could read this in two dozen different fantasy novels, like... There is a magic blade that's very special, and it chooses a wielder, and destiny has chosen that you will carry this blade. You are the bearer, you know? And I know we've just talked all that amount about, like, how dust, and it has a consciousness, and it's the fallen angels, 
Do we get in this book what the Blade consciousness is? Like, how did it choose Will? Does it know what's happening? What drives the Blade? No, I don't think we do. But I don't think the Blade is conscious. I think the Blade is, um... I think when you say that he is chosen, I think it's literally just destiny. And I think it's very obvious in this book that destiny is an important force. Because there's a lot of coincidences which tie this book together, right? <laughs> is that how you, you, you justify it? It's like, uh, coincidence. Uh, it's destiny. He's writing about the themes of destiny. I mean, it is destiny, right? Like, li- there's literally a thing in a book where a witch says... Lyra is special because she will bring an end to destiny. Meaning that there is destiny to be brought an end to. So they're all subject to destiny. Which means, of course, that there is no free will. Because if there's destiny, there's no free will. Unless Lyra is the only person in the world who has free will. In which case, there is no true destiny. You know what I'm saying, Duncan? But if she's destined to bring an end to destiny, then does that simply mean that beyond that point, there is no destiny? Or simply whatever prophecy predicts destiny just hasn't been written yet. Yeah, so the point being is that, like, there's a lot of coincidences in this book. Like, you know, Will just so happens to find the portal, and he happens to go through, and he just so happens to run into Lyra. And then they just so happen to run into the one of a person from Lyra's world, who recognizes the lithiometer. And it goes on and on and on, and, like, uh, it's not a big deal. Like, I still love this book, but I'm not a big fan of Destiny as a plot point in general. Like, my favorite book fantasy series about destiny is berserk in which destiny is in its own way kind of the villain it's all about trying to almost kill destiny i think it's my biggest issue with destiny is what are you trying to achieve in your story by bringing it up is it meant to tell us that our main character will one day be badass because i don't need a destiny to make my character do that or is it just kind of kind of justify Plot convenience. Oh, he ended up killing him. Why? He was always destined to do it. Yeah. You know, I think there is something elegant in a way. All the strands of a story fit together. You know, like perfect clock pieces. These scores being Grumman enter the world in which Lyra and Will are. And on this, like, this course bound for nothing. You're just like, oh, I can't wait for them all to meet up. But it, it does strain credulity at certain points. And, you know... I'm not I'm just not I'm just personally I'm just not a big fan of destiny in general in stories but hey ho hey ho shall we talk more about the knife let's talk about the knife first things first will we know is the bearer because he loses two fingers mm. as did the previous bearer and I assume all bearers before now Geordie, when you were reading this did it seem to you that he didn't get his fingers accidentally cut off in the fight for the knife, but he kind of got the knife and his fingers just fell off. It all went by a little fast for me. I just, um, I think he just got cut by the knife in the fight. No, no, I don't think it was. I don't think that, I mean, it obviously is destiny. Like, it's destiny that you lose two fingers. Like, it's not a coincidence that he lost two fingers. But I think it is set up well, at least, that Will takes the rope that the old man was bound with and he wraps it around his hand and you hear in his narration that it's to defend himself against the knife not knowing that it's the subtle knife and it cuts through anything so I think you know he's done that and he essentially like blocks the knife and it doesn't work obviously but since we're talking about the fight I think there's something really really well I think Philip Pullman does a really good job of convincing me that a 12 year old beats up a 17-year-old, you know? 
he does it amazingly. He really shows that Will is clever. Yeah, exactly. And he does everything he can to establish not only does Will know how to fight, he lays out his, like, philosophy of fighting about, like, aggression and just hurting the other person. And he frames it in every way that he can to say, Will has done this thing, and the other person has failed to do this thing that would help him, and therefore Will is willing this fight. And just barely, you know? Completely. I really liked it that it drew comparisons of Will from this fight, this life or death fight, Mm -hmm. and then it kind of takes us back to when he was like fighting as a kid on like the playground Mm -hmm. and those experiences and how that's where he's learned yeah and and you know there's even like the thing about like they said like will says in his head like there is a certain kind of person who is able to really really hurt another person and most people can't do it and will is that person and the other guy was fighting might not be that person you know he might not be the sort of person who can bring himself to really hurt a 12-year-old. But but Will will hurt that 17-year-old. And, you know, like, in the fight, like, Will's big thing of fighting is that, like, he gets his hand on the knife, he takes it away from him, and he just starts kicking the other guy. He just starts kicking and kicking and kicking and kicking him. And I'm thinking in my head, well, getting kicked by a 12-year-old is not going to hurt that much. And the guy doesn't get that hurt. Like, all that happens is that Will has managed to, like, push him into a sheet of glass. And that's when he gets really hurt, you know? Mm. And, like, right at the start of a book, he shoves a guy who then falls down, but he only falls because a cat happened to be in the way, you know? It's an accident. It sort of shows that it's not that Will is... Uh, draw comparisons back to the first bit. You know, he's not um, Yorick Bernison. He's not yeah. actually physically that capable, but he is as willing, which is kind of scary mm-hmm. in a 12-year-old. He is a scary kid. He's a very scary kid. They even, like, compare him to, like, Lord Asriel. They're like, Lord Asriel is a special kind of person. Like, the sort of person who is daring enough and has the persona to challenge the authority, namely God himself, to war. And Will might be the same kind of person. Does Is that likeable? Like, do you think that's an admirable trait? It's not admirable. It's probably psychopathy, or at least, you know, the result of a neglected child. But, you know, it, it, it works. It's very striking. It's appropriate for a heroic, in the, you know, classical sense character. It's very Achilles-y. Um, but yeah, it, it makes him a good protagonist. And Will is likable for other reasons. He's likable because he cares about his mother. And he's, he's honourable in, like, a really surprisingly straightforward way like putting money on a countertop in a world that won't accept his currency because you know he doesn't like stealing that's that was sort of thing, really nice that's the sort of thing that makes will like not only so distinct from lyra but like just like a, he's, he's trying to be a good kid even though he's like in a bad environment i think that's um that's kind of the, the key to it isn't it it's like will is he's not he is prepared to go to the extremes he's not like jumping at the opportunity okay so Duncan we talked about Will and but funnily enough we have not mentioned the titular subtle knife that much in this book it is our new alethiometer it is our new signature device what does it do so it kind of has two main powers now the first one and two main purposes 
the first one is it can cut anything. Very simple, very direct. Slice and dice. It just slices through whatever. Yeah, if it was longer, it would actually be... I like the fact that it has its own like special scabbard to like hold the blade in the middle. Because obviously, if it pushes up against the sides of the scabbard, it will just go through. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you end up like slicing on your leg. Yeah, and it's... um. And it's actually a surprisingly rare thing to find in, like, a fantasy novel that, like, the signature weapon just cuts anything. Like, I don't know if I've ever actually encountered something that literally will cut anything. Like, even a lightsaber doesn't cut anything, you know? I think it's important that it's still not, like, overpowered, because we're sitting in a world with guns, and Will could still just get shot. Yeah, there's a scene where a guy has a pistol, and Will's like, oh, fuck, I don't know what to do. (laughs) And its second power which is what creates this entire real novel around, is the mm-hmm. fact that it can not only just cut anything, but it can cut through the fabric of reality. Yes. It can create a portal into another world. And that is, like, its defining ability and the reason why everyone wants it, because it is the ultimate tool for traversing the cosmos. It's fantastic, especially the way Philip Pullman describes how it's used. Mm, I, yeah. This description stayed with me throughout all the years between reading the uh, rereading this book. The mm-hmm. fact that you, you put your mind at the end of the blade and Will has to kind of like, he can't just cut anywhere. He has to find the little nick, a right. little point where he can push the blade in and cut through the fabric of reality. Mm. Beautifully uh, visualised. Great question. Does he just do one slice down and does it open like curtains or does he have to like cut himself a little porthole i've always imagined it as a circle so he's like cutting the whole porthole. he's going the whole circumference i think so that's my understanding of it i think he can define the, the shape and size of it he kind of seals it back up that's his that's right. will that's a power that will just sort of has as the blade bearer mm-hmm. i think anyone can in theory do it where no. he only he can like put his mind at the end of his fingertips find the edge and just like I picture it like curtains, just like draw the world. Oh yeah, back I, I sort of imagine it's like, I guess curtains right. The other way I've pictured it is with like a zip. <laughs> uh, just like, you just grab the end, zip. That's good, a zip. Uh, yeah. And what do we, what does Philip Tom do with this world building though? Because I think that's we've already mentioned earlier on that the original creators were using it basically to steal stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so much more than that. The idea that. They were creating these pathways between worlds and almost as they were like going along, they would just sort of sometimes forget to close portals up. <laughs> and that's what left all this interconnectability. Yeah, that's true. Like people journey into other worlds by sort of by happenstance running into these old portals. And there's almost been this extra cosmic community that's built up. Like other beings just know, like angels just actual angels flying around literal messengers of god just go through these portals that had been left open for them special night gaunts from other dimensions will just come along the specters which pose so much of a risk to chitagaze are just from another world they just wander through that was yeah that's definitely the impression i got in this book so the specters are these monsters the reason why chitagaze doesn't doesn't have any adults is because the specters are these I don't really know. I advise them as these, like, inferior snake-like mist creatures. They're actually quite a bit like a Doctor Who villain, you know? Uh, no? Yes. You know, like, How? think about it. Like, can't you imagine, like, being seen, like, only a special type of person can see this creature 
and it wants a specific type of person to be its prey, and it's from another world, and they're spectral and ghostly. Yes, okay, maybe. You know, like maybe. that David, there was an episode, bro, there was an episode of Doctor Who where there were spectres going around, but I think those spectres were secretly Cybermen. Oh, you were talking about the ghosts from the end of um, season two, David Tennant. Movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very different, my friend. Very, very different. Uh, know, those those Cybermen were trapped in the void between worlds. There's a, like a non-space. And what they were doing, they were trying to project themselves onto our world, but they didn't have enough strength to like fully materialise, so they appeared as spectres. Yeah. Got to get your Doctor Who knowledge down. Um, for some reason, I'm getting my same Star Wars nerd revulsion whilst you're talking about Doctor Who. I think it's spreading, Duncan. You brought it up. Yeah, uh, but I really enjoyed the spectres as a creature. And I like the idea that they do just sort of, I imagine that there's like, in this book, there's like a world of spectres that someone just opened one day and went, oh shit. No, Duncan, they say in the book, Will's world is the world of spectres. No, uh, I don't think they say explicitly because it can't it be our world. I, well, I reject that because it can't be our world because our world doesn't have an issue with spectres. I think the spectres Unless... might just be different in Will's world. Like he, it, I, I don't remember this being contradicted in the next book. I think I remember it being contradicted. Oh, what happened? Was there a mass migration? Do all the spectres go? Actually, guys, let's uh, let's jump over the border. Actually, Much tastier wait. souls in there. Now to think about it, I think there's like a, I think there might be a ghost dimension in the next book. There might be a ghost dimension in the next book. See. Well, maybe we'll have to see at the end of this episode whether we're gonna find that out. But in the meantime. I think beyond just the world building, the fact that there are these different worlds and there is this different experience, Ruta Skadi, the witch queen of Latvia, who, for some reason, um, the narrator of the audiobook did not give a Latvian accent. Interesting choice. Just sounded like a British lady. Uh, Lee Scoresby gets a Texan accent, but the Latvian doesn't get a Latvian accent. I, I fear I that they may have back. tried it and the producer just went, no, 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 no. There are actual... Duncan, you know that Latvians are real, right? You, you could just get a Latvian person to play the character. Well, well wait, is this audio... Sorry, is this a multicast um, oh, yeah. audio bit? It's oh. really good. Apologies. Every character gets an actor. My apologies. In- that should have been the case. Including just random kids. Like, everyone gets a performance... It's just like the Dune audiobook, except like they really committed to the bits. Like sometimes in the Dune audiobook, the narrator does the voices, and but sometimes it's just actual characters having conversations with one another. Anyway, it's not, 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 not. world building. When Ruta Skadi is exploring other worlds, she finds Lord Asriel's army. And I said this in a previous episode, very blase, just sort of forgetting that it wasn't clear at this point. But no, Lord Asriel is literally going to kill God. He's going to find God, kick down his door, and kill him. Still very unclear at this point how gunpowder is used in a war on God. I don't think they're using gunpowder. They literally say that Lord Asriel's castle, um, I think each block is the size of a building, they said. Like, each brick in his castle. It definitely gave me a, a, an issue of scale, I'll say that. Because it was meant to be this massive. I think there's even an implication at one point that like Lord Asriel is no longer f- like obeying the normal laws of time. Like, yeah, that he could was, not have that was so crazy. They said he must have been planning this for millennia, but he's just a mortal man. And I went, that's... This, you're, you're like joking, right? Like, is this an exaggeration or is, is some 
buffoonery happening here because I'm pretty sure he killed Roger like three weeks ago. Oh, I am certain on this, but he's like gathered these armies from all these different worlds. And I'm like, did you just like send a memo, like show up in a world, go who wants to join me? Or did you have to like travel around and like recruit? How did you do it? Now, Duncan, do you know the meaning of the word angel? Um, I I know if you to- ask me to describe an angel, I could maybe draw no, you a Duncan, picture. Do you know the meaning of the word angel? I do not. It is messenger. So I think he ran into an angel and said, "Send, start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be part of it. Part of the grand mission to kill God in his sickbed. Okay, that I can see. I still feel like there must be some time shenanigans. I have two theories. Do you want to hear them? I want to hear both of them, Duncan. One is that um, maybe, you know, worlds, maybe time doesn't actually pass in all these worlds at the same rate. You know, maybe it is one of those things where like, like Narnia, (laughs) a day here is a hundred years there. I don't think that's true. Second, maybe. Yes. (laughs) Sorry, I've only just come up with this one. Okay. Um, Maybe, I like to hear uh, your theory if it has no thought behind it. Go ahead. Well, as a, a fan of uh, British sci-fi, you'll be familiar with the... Um, are we, are we actually going to Doctor Who? ...of Red Dwarf and the concept <laughs> oh. of backwards universes. The time, the, the universe where time goes backwards? After, uh, millennia after the Big Bang, there's the Big Crunch and everything starts going backwards and you get younger. So maybe he's like having to do like day hops between. I do like universe. I do like that episode of Red Dwarf, but it doesn't mean I'm going to approve of this theory, Duncan. <laughs> I do not think there is a backwards world. Very well, but yeah, it's grand in scope. If anything, though, Jordy, I felt it was a bit too grand. That it kind of was quite meaningless to me. It's like, what does he have? He has a big army. Cool. He has an army of tens of millions. I can't conceptualize tens of millions. I can. Skill issue. Okay, good for you. Well, there's the big plots. That is the big thing that's happening. And the thing is that Lord Asriel needs the subtle knife. Because the subtle knife's name, it ultimately turns out. And this is a mystery I wasn't really expecting. There's a bit where they say, like, oh, we need to find uh, Aza Hater, I think they call it. But it means God Killer. And initially, the witches think it might be a person... But it turns out it is the subtle knife. Big surprise. And Grumman, his big mission, he's trying to find the bear of the subtle knife so he can give the subtle knife to Lord Azrael because that is the only thing that will be able to literally kill God. Open the way and stab him in the heart. And speaking of Grumman, shall we talk about like the neatest little bow that this book manages to tie up? So, Grumman, or should I call him... <gasps> Stanislas Grum. Oh no, that's his actual name. <laughs> Shall I call? <laughs> I got all three names. Shall I call him John Parry? Ah, that's right. I mean, we probably should have established in this episode that Will's name is Will Parry, but yes, he is Will's father, and he went missing in Alaska twelve years ago because he accidentally walked into another dimension, and then he has been jumping around between dimensions, and at some point he became a wizard. And it is not explained how he did that. Well, he's become a shaman. Yes. Um, and originally, I thought that was just like a title. But then he full on uses magic wind power. 
yes, he calls down a storm and, like, destroys zeppelins with lightning bolts and and commands the birds. He's basically a druid. Oh, there is such a good... I want to read his story. I don't. Put it out there. I think that there is something so wonderful in the fact that he very, very briefly tells Lee Scoresby and just stops there. Like, I should be mad that we don't know why he is a wizard. But I kind of don't care. He's a wizard. Who cares? He got a hole drilled in his head to let more dust in. Talking of like, but you think that, but like, talking like parallel universes, maybe he just stumbled onto that, you know, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell universe. (laughs) It's not that far different from our own. Maybe. Like, my understanding was that he's basically been to three worlds. His own, Chitigaze world, and Lyra's world. That was the way I read his story. But, you know, maybe he did. Or maybe that there are a bunch of just random people in Lyra's world. There are witches who can just do that stuff. And if you drill a hole in your head, you can just summon birds and and kill zeppelins with lightning bolts. I'm happy for him. And I really enjoy his relationship with Lee Scoresby. I do too. It's such a surprising moment of camaraderie. Like, Lee Scoresby has his own little detective novel inside this sci-fi fantasy book. Almost complete, seemingly almost unconnected to everything else that goes on until it ties up into a neat bow. Destiny was on his side again. And it has a wonderful culmination. Okay, we, we touched on this long, long ago. Yes. Let's go back to Lee Scoresby's adventure. Mm-hmm. Lee Scoresby had the most emotionally impactful end in this book. Yes. So after he brings Gronham or John Parry to the, the world of Sitagase mm-hmm. and they're separated and Lee, they're being chased down by men sent from the authority mm-hmm. and Lee has to make the last stand. Yeah. Hold the pass. There's an... And it's it's appropriate that he is like a Texan because, you know, there's there's all sorts of allusions to Western stories. Like it's it's all very... Uh, Butch casting the Sundance Kid and the name in which he died the chapter in which he dies is called like the Alamo Gully like it's literally saying that this is like the Alamo and it's a Texan standing against a much greater force and heroically giving up his life. It's much more successful than the Alamo at least. It's almost it's very sad so this is a great Last Stand. Unlike mm-hmm. Last Stands in fantasy literature, okay? Yep. I think they're great. Everyone can read our episode on... What was the book about the siege called again, Duncan? Legend. Legend. Everyone read our episode, listen to our episode on Legend. <laughs> it's just a wonderful trope because it's when your character reveals themselves. It's the fun, it's end of the character arc. They're not going any further. This is their definitive. This is when they reveal what they stand for as a character mm-hmm. and what they think and what they value. And Lee Scoresby stands for protecting Lyra. He stands for or doing the right thing and keeping his word. Mm-hmm. And he values his demon and the friendship he has there. And yeah. they fight together. It's really like, it's really touching the fact that like they make clear in this moment that Hester is quite a a distant figure, you know, like she stands at a distance. They don't often like she doesn't often like pet him or snuggle with him. The closest he ever really comes is that sometimes when he's walking around, he picks her up and he, he tucks her into his jacket to keep her near at hand. But, you know, 
he's almost shocked at the end that Hester comes up to comfort him and like and like and basically like give him kisses and like say how much she loves him. And it's it's a heartbreaking. It's <laughs> sorry. You said you got welled up. I, I found I, this. I, I... I was straight up uh, cried at this. Like, I remember as a kid, my dad reading me this bit. And it stood out to me forever. Even though I didn't remember anything about Lee Scoresby's story, I remember this because this was the first time I ever saw my dad cry. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that must have been emotionally impactful. I, it clearly was because it stood with me. I... The second time I was in the this next scene book. So much. In fact... I actually thought this scene wasn't in this book for some reason. I thought mm. this was like in the next book. So it, it took me it took me off guard. In fact, this is only this is the second to last chapter. But I had to have a break. Mm. To let it in because it's the way that it's not just he's having his last stand. It's I think it's the fact that he's still thinking and he's still doing the normal things of a fight, you know. He's trying to outsmart his enemy. He's outnumbered, so he's trying to be clever. Um, I love the fact that he wins in the sense that he I know. beats I back the enemy. I was surprised by that. Um, and then he gets to lie down. He's wounded and he gets to lie down. I don't think what really hit me mm-hmm. is that it wasn't immediately obvious to me that he was going to die mm. until he sort of quietly passes away at the end of the fight. I mean, maybe it's just because, Duncan, you don't know what the Alamo is. Duncan, do you know what the Alamo is? Um, I have seen uh, Davy Crockett and the King of the Wild Frontier by okay, Disney. Gotcha. Thank you. Okay, so he, y- you, you know what it is. Never mind that. Um, I know, but it doesn't mean this is just the last stand. I didn't necessarily mean that he was going to pass away. And I know reading this, I knew what I know what happens mm. um, in the future book vaguely. But I think it's because it's not um, it's not a violent end. Is actually you have the big fight, but his actual death still manages to be peaceful. Yeah, and very touching, and like you get to spend time with with Hester, and uh, and they say you know how much they care about each other and stuff before he goes. It's 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 wonderful that like you know Lee Scoresby ultimately isn't some man of action. Like he's a man who knows how to use a gun, and he's a man who's been on adventures and even been in wars. But right as he like takes aim at the first guy who is going to kill him, he says to Hester, "Now Hester, you know I don't like killing," and like goes into this fight with extreme reluctance, you know? So can we now move on to the heartbreak that his last oath that he gets out of Gronan, mm. you know, Gronan immediately breaks in the next chapter. Didn't expect that, to be honest. Didn't think Gronan would do that. You know, John Parry seems basically like a decent guy, strange, certainly, but no, it turns out he's so single-minded and so set on his own mission and his own goal, which is aligned with Lord Azrael, that he betrays the oath he made to to Lee Scoresby, that he would take the course of action that would protect Lyra. And instead, he chooses not to. He chooses to he chooses Lord Azrael over Lyra. Bring Lord Azrael the knife, Will, and uh, and and help kill God. That's what we're after. I thing is i was i enjoyed Gronham up to this point i liked mm-hmm. john parry as a character and he was fun but i felt this was actually incredibly good to make will and lyra eventually land on the same page yeah because ultimately this is about both her father and will's father going we care more about our greater goals 
than You're right. the well-being of children. That's true. That's exactly right, Duncan. They're both fundamentally selfish. They're focused on the great things instead of the good things. Characters like Serafina Pecula and characters like Lee Scoresby don't care about the big picture. They care about doing the right thing. And it's that that makes them so much like, well, essentially, they are the same as Miss Coulter, who is in this book, but she's there. She's not as prominent as in the she first She is there. Book. We don't have time to talk about her, but she's more menacing than ever. And it's like, yes, she doesn't really care about Lyra. She cares about her greater, higher goals. It just so happens that her goals are different. But it's the same fundamental philosophy. My goals are more important than my children. Mm. And what an ass. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are a bunch of jerks, aren't they? And John Parry, maybe his mind would have been changed because he lights up. He's he's encountered Will, but he's encountered him in the dark. And when he lights up um, the lantern in between them, they immediately, immediately recognize each other. And in that exact second, he gets shot and dies. Okay, two things on this. Number one, I get it. Will recognises dad. Dad wouldn't change that much. How the hell does his dad recognise Will? He, he says it right there on the page, Duncan. He recognises his strong brows, which he shares with his mother, which is set up right at the start of the book. In the first chapter, it says these two, the mother and son, look really, really similar to one another. Okay, so I, I, I caught there... that. I caught that the moment it was said, and I went, ah, okay, I see what you've done there, Philip Pullman. Once again, you prove that you were a very, very clever man, because I knew this scene was coming, and I, and I saw, ah, yes, this is how it happens. This is how you justify it. Indeed. Fine. When I first read this, I was so disappointed by the fact that he dies instantly. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like, I was like, why so he's killed by a witch who we don't we don't need to get into it like it's well set up it's it's if you know it's if you can see it coming even if you haven't read the book before i think yeah but the whole point of this is to make it seem almost pointless especially to will it's like his dad dies and he's like why what part it's not the enemy it's mm-hmm. just a side tangent and it's like will you won't you don't understand the complexities of love and adulting. And Will's there like, no, I don't. What earth is going on? Mm-hmm. And as a young kid reading this, I was right there with Will like, no, I don't. What What it just happened? Actually, that reminds me of something. I Here's something I like about this book is that this book actually it points its finger right at me and something I said in the previous book. And it says, no, no, don't, uh, no, no, Geordie. You're quite wrong here because I said this book is about the loss of innocence. And that's not true. It's not about the loss of innocence. Because Will makes clear, and Will as a character makes clear, that what I was referring to is innocence. That's not what Dust is interested in. Because Will is a violent kid. Like, he does violent stuff, and he knows that kids can be just as evil as adults. Like, he he says, like, kids tormented my confused mother, and since that day I've never trusted kids, because I know they're no different from adults. This is made very explicit with the character of Angelica, who I won't go into, but Lyra has the same realisation when she meets Angelica, a girl in exactly. from City Garza, and she's just like, I only thought adults were evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the whole of the first book, that's the setup that's with right. saving the children. And to have that crashing down around Lyra, I was like, I mean, I feel for you, Lyra, but I'm glad you've learned that lesson. <laughs> but I think it's really apt that like you realise, okay, so it's not about the loss of innocence. 
something else is going on. It's much more explicitly about what happens when you grow up. And that's, of course, what the next book is going to be about and what a bunch of the biblical allegory stuff is going to be about. Because in this book, Dr. Malone, a scientist, is told by angels, you will play the serpent. And it turns out Lyra's secret name, which is introduced in chapter two, which is finally tortured out of a witch, that her true name, you know, Lyra has so many different names, her true name is Eve. Um, you can start to see, Duncan, why Catholics didn't like this book, right? I can see it more now. Um, but it still fell into a very interesting point with me, whereas despite the fact that, you know, clearly... This book is doing uh, a biblical allegory where we're going over, we've got the angels, it's Eve, it's a retelling of Genesis, it's the forbidden fruit, it's the loss of, not the loss of innocence, the gaining of something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I still, as a reader, and I felt that when I was a kid, I didn't get it. And as an adult, I'm like, yeah, I see it now. I still love this, not for all of that, though. I love it because I like hanging out with Will and Lyra and Lee Scoresby and the characters. It's almost um, the message that I think the book's putting together. You know, it's like, don't be too concerned with the grand goals of Lord Asriel. Mm. It's more about the little things that Lee Scoresby cares about, which is like friends and family. And I think that's how I feel with the book. It's like, yeah, those big themes are there, but I love it for the little characters. And that's that's where Subtle Knife leaves me at. I, I mean, I can't dispute that. I think that part of this book is the fact that, yeah, it is leading up to something bigger. Like, the next book... It promises a war in heaven. And I, I can't really remember much of what that war in heaven looks like. And I'm really interested to see where it goes. I remember something about hammers the size of buildings. So I want to see how that goes. But yeah, maybe we'll find out how a war in heaven is fought next time. See some more weird and wonderful worlds. I think they're going to jump through like dozens of different worlds in the next book. There's I, a lot of I stuff... Remember is that they definitely go to, like, an underworld. That's yes. the only thing that I have fixed firmly in my mind. Yes. And I think... And actually, no, Duncan, the more I think about it, I think you may be right. I think that is where the spectres do come from. We shall, however, see in time. Or will we? Because it's my pick, Dordie, for the next yes. book. And... and last time we did an episode... Or rather, not last time we did an episode, but last time we did the Northern Lights... You implied that we were not going to read The Amber Spyglass. That you were going to taunt me and pick the next book in the Scholomance trilogy. Yeah, I'm... If it's not been evident enough already, Geordie, I would not do that to you. I so want to read The Amber Spyglass. I've already started it. This is an amazing trilogy, and I want to see it through to the end. Well, I'm glad to hear it, Duncan. Now, I think I'm going to have to buy the audiobook for the next one again, because I made a specific choice. I couldn't go down... I couldn't go down to to Suffolk to get my copy of the Amber Spyglass, and I do not have time to do it. But actually, wait, I could steal a copy from my school library. I did spot it earlier this week. I wonder if I have time to read it in my lunch break. We shall have to see in the coming weeks as we start to read the Amber Spyglass. Duncan, if anyone wants to message us about the Sutter Knife, the Northern Lights, and our last episode on Star Wars... Where can they talk to us? They can reach out to us at our Gmail at is this just fantasy podcast at gmail.com or best place our Instagram is this just fantasy podcast. Uh, follow yes. us there for updates on from the pod. 
and actually doing other interesting stuff. Duncan, I contributed to Instagram for the first time. Congratulations, my friend. I helped. I helped. I need all the help I can get, Geordie. All right, Duncan. Well, we will see how this, this trilogy wraps up, whether Amber Spyglass will defy our remembrance of it and be our favourite book. We shall have to see. I mean, it could definitely offer us a new perspective. Yeah. That was a joke about spyglasses. Um, yeah. <sighs> you know what? Maybe I, maybe I don't want to do this podcast anymore. Maybe, maybe that was a bit too much for me. I thought this book, though, was really on the uh, cutting edge. Oh, f- well, you know what? I've been your host, Jordy Bailey. We're done here. I've been your host, Duncan Nickel. Goodbye, Duncan. Maybe forever. <laughs> Bye.